1997, I was a junior at Moody Bible Institute, and I remember there was a great gathering of men from across the country. They were marching on Washington, D.C., descending, hoping to get a, a million men. It was known as the Million Man March, if I remember correctly, through a group called Promise Keepers. A number of my friends drove out to D.C. to be a part of it, and I remember thinking, a million people. What would that even look like? Now, I think that gathering fell a little bit short of a million. But in comparison to the greatest gatherings of people in human history, at least recorded, even if they had reached a million, that wouldn't have even come close to the greatest number. 30 million gathered in India for a pilgrimage a number of years ago. 30 million. That's number one, recorded history. Number two really is about half of that. It's 17 million, and that was a pilgrimage that was an Islamic pilgrimage in Iraq. Third was in Iran, also an Islamic gathering around the funeral of the Ayatollah Khomeini. Fourth, around five or six million, was a Roman Catholic gathering in the Philippines when the Pope visited The top four gatherings, Hindu, Islamic, Roman Catholic, and none of those in the Western Hemisphere. The greatest gathering in the Western Hemisphere, can you guess? Not even close. It comes down about number seven, five million people gathered on Friday, November 4th. 2016, seventh largest gathering in human history, and they gathered to celebrate the Chicago Cubs World Series victory. 108 years without a championship. The lovable losers became winners. And we were in Chicago during that time, which was great, because I grew up a Cubs fan. I don't know how, I think WGN, something like that, in the Ryan Sandberg years. And I remember hearing a story of an old man who was just getting ready to die. The Cubs won the World Series and he said, finally, I've waited my whole life. Now I'm ready to die. The Cubs have won the World Series. I remember thinking, poor guy. You know, that as the great marker of now I can die. Five million gathered. So that adds in, not a, not, a, not a religious gathering, but in, in many ways, it is the religion of our culture, if you think about it, and what we rotate around and what we love to celebrate. But greater than the Hindu, Islamic, or sport-centric gatherings, there is a greater gathering that makes these pale in comparison, and we read about it in Revelation 7. Verse 9, John writes, and I love I'm so glad we sing that song. Love that song. Is anyone worthy? Right? Verse 9 says, After this I looked and behold. Right? Because he is worthy. Uh, behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages, including that one we prayed for. Hallelujah. Right? Lord, may it be and it will be. 
standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and they're singing a glorious song. Innumerable multitude. Go ahead and try to count. You can't. And this is from the entire world. It's global fulfillment at the end. And yet here we are, all the way back in Genesis 1, which is our passage. You can turn to Genesis 1 this morning. Here we are at the beginning with two people, the largest human gathering up to that point, male and female. Thank you, Peter. Created in the image of God from two to innumerable multitude, bearing the image of the second and greater Adam, Jesus the eternal Son of God. What an awesome story. So today we want to look at some, some of the foundations that will lead us into this incredible picture of an innumerable gathering, a global bride, and also things that help us understand our place in that story as we look at the beginning and to the end and from the end to the beginning and we walk through it. And that's what we're going to find foundations in this word that we will see in our text this morning called Dominion. And so let's pray. Father, we pray that as we come to your word, that you would speak to your people, that you would wash us in your word, that you would give us eyes to behold the greatness and the glory of Christ. And Lord, that you would stir us to fresh love and good works as your people. Confidence for where you're leading us and for your work in our lives and in our families and communities and and in this world in which you've placed us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your word. It is precious. Amen. So as we heard last week, God created man and woman in his image and after his likeness. And image and likeness are not derived from how different we are from creation right? Uh, But actually how we are made in a unique way to God, our creator, unique as image bearers, and that is as royal sons and daughters. And we saw this played out last week, that it is an image that is unique because towards God, we're sons and daughters. Adam and Eve were made as son and daughter. And towards creation, they are royal king and queen. And this reflection of the image of the great God who is father and and king and this is God who makes man as reflectors of who he is as his children and royal king and queen so displaying the image of God in the uniqueness of being human similar or distinct from creation isn't the same thing as the image of God itself right and so Peter walked us through kind of comparing with creation So today we want to look at the responsibilities. What comes with this creation of being sons and daughters, royal son and daughter? What has he tasked us with? What did he task Adam and Eve with in the world that he made and placed them in as image bearers, reflecting God into the creation? We're going to read from Genesis 1 verses 27 to 31. Let's hear God's word. So God created man 
in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. So you look at the passage, it has a, a, a basic flow to it. Really, it's, it's taking verse 24 or 26 and sort of just expanding it out, right? It gives a, a kind of a sketch in 26 and then 27 and following, it's going to fill it out for us as he moves into the poetry of God making man in his image, male and female, and then God blessing them and commanding them to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. And to have dominion over the fish and the birds and the animals. And then he continues, I've given you food. And I've given the beasts green plants for food. And it's very good. Notice first, the very first thing as we come into the passage is that, that God blesses them. All right? After he makes them male and female, after he creates them, Verse 28, and God blessed them. So before anything else, before commands are given, before commands will be broken, God's royal son and daughter carry the blessing of their creator, their father, their king. God's favors upon them and he will do them good. So before they've done anything good or bad, they're blessed. Simply, because they're his. And that's an important foundation because there's going to be a theme of, of the blessing of God that's going to be woven over his children throughout the storyline of Scripture. And it sure makes Ephesians 1 come alive and resound. And with this blessing, God gives two commands be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue the earth, and have dominion over its living creatures. Incredibly, these two commands follow the same pattern of the foundations that we saw for divine image, and that is royal sonship. So the first, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Stop there. Let's take that first part. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. What does it mean to be fruitful and multiply? Notice the family imagery, son and daughter of God having sons and daughters of man in their likeness, imaging a greater likeness. And we see that in Genesis 5, 1 to 3, as Adam has Seth in his likeness and after his image, right? There's a, a clear purpose of design, all right? This is global in scope. Be fruitful, multiply, fill 
the earth. And these are two people. And the world is a big place. So fill it with image-bearing royal sons and daughters. I just want you to note, I think it's important to note, that the command isn't simply a command to have lots of babies, though definitely having babies is a part of it. It is filling the earth with image-reflecting, God-worshipping children of the God who is the Father and King. All right, let me just state it again. Filling the earth ties directly into the image of God and carries with it the vision of an earth filled with image-bearing, God-worshipping sons and daughters of God, the God who is Father and King. So these go together. Fill the earth with image-bearing royal sons and daughters. Second, subdue it and have dominion over the fish, the sea, the birds of the heavens, and every living creature that, that moves. Right? They're, they're created in God's image and they're told to subdue the earth and to fill it and exercise dominion over its living creatures. So what does it mean to subdue the earth? What does it mean to have dominion over its living creatures? Is it simply domesticating animals? Is it bringing order to the world outside of the garden? Is it mining for resources in the heart of the earth? You could say, sure, these are all things that humans do because God has prepared the earth to be inhabited, inhabited by man and man is subduing it. Those are all true things. But those are not image things. Notice the royal imagery. To subdue is to rule. To exercise dominion is to exercise authority. And so you get this picture of a royal son and daughter extending the family kingdom to the ends of the earth. It's a picture of enemies conquered. It's a picture of peace and rest in the land and among the nations. And so here before the fall, it is a picture of royal sons and daughters extending the family kingdom to the ends of the earth, seeing them subjected, seeing all things subjected to the great and glorious God. And so to exercise dominion is an outflow of subduing. Subdue the earth, exercise dominion over. Notice what they're exercising dominion over. It says it's the fish, the birds, livestock, and other creeping things up in verse 26. And it's repeated down here. I think it's interesting that these are things that were made on day three and day six. It's interesting that God doesn't command them to exercise dominion over the things made on day one, two, or four. They don't exercise dominion over light or the sun or you walk through it. No, there's a responsibility that's unique because the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, as the psalmist says in Psalm 24, verse 1, all of its gods. And my image bearers are here and they're imaging the God who does subdue, the God who has the dominion. And they're reflecting this as they live out uh, who God is as worshipers of him in the earth he's placed them. 
He made Adam and Eve to steward his creation. And I think that's a great picture. And then he gives man and woman every plant yielding seed and tree with its seed and its fruit. Again, those are things God made on day three. God entrusts the things of day three for their food. And so the provision for them comes from God. As you see at the end of verse 29, you shall have them for food. It's from the Lord. And then notice what, what he says. He says in verse 30, to every beast of the earth and every bird of the heaven and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for them, right, for food. And I think John Calvin hits it. He says this about the, these, these verses. He says, for the words of God are to this effect. Behold, I have prepared food for you before you were formed. So acknowledge me, therefore, as your father, who has so diligently provided for you when you were not yet created. Moreover, my care for you has proceeded still further. It was your business to nurture the things provided for you, but I have taken even this charge also upon myself. Wherefore, although you do in a sense represent fatherhood, right, the father of the earthly family, it's not for you to be over-anxious about the sustenance of the animals. And so even as they are given dominion over these animals, who's going to feed them? God. And that's part of the imaging. Don't get me wrong, you feed your pets and you feed your animals, right? That's a part of it. But God is the provider and all these things are coming from God, right? The, the image and the likeness of God flowing out in a people made to subdue, to fill, to fill the earth, to subdue it and exercise dominion because it's the God who fills it. It's the God who subdues it, and it's the God who exercises dominion over his creation. What does that mean for us sitting here at Risen King, as Risen King Church? What does this design, this creation of of male and female as image bearers reflecting it in the world that they are placed? What does it mean? Is our calling to exercise dominion a calling to have lots of babies and subdue the world for God? Or is it more than this? And the good news is that we don't have to speculate. We don't have to try to bring back into the text what the text doesn't say. The text is clear. And the text is going to launch us forward in a story of Scripture that's going to unfold these things for us right to the end of days. Because Genesis 1 is about design. And it's going to lead us into something far greater. So we want to take time to look at some of the ways the theme of dominion develops through Scripture. And there's a couple of points that I, I want to highlight. So first, just to restate, I think it's, again, important that we keep image and dominion together because they go together. The dominion is an outflow of image. The ruling over God's world flows out of the royal sonship being imaged and multiplied 
and the earth. And this is very important. A lot of bad theology occurs when we read scripture backwards, when we squeeze meaning into passages that is foreign to the text or that's out of line with the full scope of the revelation of scripture. So we're reading the Bible, again, with the end in mind from the beginning, the beginning from the end, and the center point of Jesus, where it is all leading and pointing. If we follow the storyline, we'll see that, that God is going to take this man and this woman and he's going to place them into a garden where he has subdued it for them. It's peace. There is rest. There is provision. There is all that they need. But there is going to be an enemy that will need to be subdued. Even as Adam is told to work and to keep, part of the keeping is the protecting, the defending. We'll get to that in the next few weeks. As we follow then through the fall, and we see at the fall really God's creation turning upside down with sin. As man exalts his truth above God, his word above God's word, we're going to find that chaos comes in into the world. Because when God created the world, notice he did all of it through the power of his word. He speaks and he creates and he forms man. And we'll see that in chapter two. All right, the spoken word, he makes all things. And then he gives them commands through his spoken word. They are image bearers as he speaks it and as he reveals it and tells us. And even in the garden, there are commands that they are given. It's God's spoken word that they are to believe and to obey. So as we see in Eden, before we move forward, let me, let me just summarize it this way. Eden is a place of God's presence. A place of God's presence is a place of worship. The expansion of Eden, therefore, is an expansion of worship. So worship fuels missions in Eden. Bearers of the image of God, reflecting his presence in worship, are being propelled forward in their mission to fill the earth with reflections of God's glory. And that's G.K. Beale. So as we come out of the garden, all that has come about through God's mighty spoken word, we find then the multiplying of a people made in God's image, but who have rejected God's word. They have instead exalted themselves above God's word. Instead of worshiping God, they have worshiped themselves. Really, they've become their greatest idols. And in in that reality, they have worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, as Romans 1 states. They have followed the enemy. And you see mankind multiplying then. And you watch watch this multiplication and you see sin multiplying. And I won't comment on Cain and Abel because we'll get there. But as we come into Genesis 6 and we see all of a sudden... God is going to bring a global judgment because he is the sovereign over the earth. It is his domain. He has all the dominion. And he brings the judgment. But he saves. And who believes his word? Noah will again believe God's spoken word and he will obey it. We find God bringing a salvation. As we come out of then the flood, uh, last week Peter mentioned Genesis 9 where we again see this this display of the image of God, the the highlighting that man and woman, even in their fallenness, 
You still don't murder because they're made in God's image. They're still image bearers. And that has to shape how we view and how we interact and how we treat one another, even as we see that image distorted by sin and twisted and ravaged and corrupted, to use the language of Scripture. But I want you to notice, if you look at Genesis 9, because we're going to hear the same language that we heard in Genesis 1. It's going to be repeated here for us. You almost get the sense, it's like Noah is a type of second Adam. Because he and his wife, really from them now will come the generations. In Genesis 9 verse 1, look, it says that God blessed Noah. You hear that? Just like God had blessed the man and the woman, he blesses Noah and his sons and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they, will be, they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. And then he goes on to talk about requiring uh, Lifeblood for murder because man's made in God's image. And again, there's this linkage of image bearing and, and going forth. But notice that the text doesn't mention subduing creation. It doesn't mention the exercising of dominion. It mentions the multiplying. Go forth and multiply and do this. It's also interesting that the order of the animals as he lists them, it's, it's backwards. It's upside down from what you find in Genesis 1. And I think, I'm speculating, but I think it's an interesting picture of how everything has been turned upside down from what God created in Genesis 1. Uh, image bearers, worshipers of God, reflecting that, sons and daughters, family kingdom, ends of the earth. And what do we find multiplied? According to Genesis 6, sin. Murder and death and all that comes from a realm that is in bondage to sin and to Satan. And yet the command still comes, be fruitful, you're blessed. The blessing of God is upon you, multiply, fill the earth. Immediately we find as people are multiplying, once again, there is rebellion. We see Sin at work in Noah and his sons because sin must be defeated. Sin has exercised dominion. Interesting picture that you take from Cain. Sin is ruling over the human heart. And it's sin that is being multiplied and spreading. And yet God comes with his promise. And, and as people again gather in rebellion against God's word at, at Babel in Genesis 12... It's God who enters in. It's God's word that speaks and scatters. It's God who creates nations. Because it's the God who exercises dominion over the world. And so he does it. And he scatters the nations. And then he calls one man. And he speaks promise and blessing to this man, Abram. In Genesis 12. And this man Abram is promised that God is going to multiply his offspring. And he's going to multiply them innumerable. You can't measure them like the sand of the sea and the stars in the sky. 
You can hear the echoes of the language of Genesis 1 that's moving us forward because it's going to be God who's going to carry this about. And Abram believes God and he walks by faith. And we get to journey with Abram and we're going to do that as we preach through these texts. I won't do that here. But it's beautiful to watch that God is going to carry out the very mandate he gives. Abram's powerless to do it. He can't even produce a child. His wife is barren. Again, that's part of the, the results of the fall. But God brings life where there is death. God overcomes what we cannot overcome. And God rules the world that he created. And we'll see that as he leads his people into Israel, as he promises them a land, as he makes provision for them, as he fights their enemies, as God is the warrior who fights for his people. And we we see this, God is committed to dwelling with and overcoming where we cannot overcome. God does. And this leads us up to the time of David and the kings. Let's go to Psalm 8. Because Psalm 8 is an important uh, text for us as we think about this subduing and this dominion that Genesis 1 launched us into. Psalm 8 recounts the language of Genesis 1, but but really with a, a heightening it's, it's a growing forward, a moving up, or an intensifying of what we have seen as, it's walk, as we've walked through the story of Scripture. Psalm 8 says this, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. You've crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all things sheep and oxen and beasts of the field and birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. There's this global proclamation in the midst of a world that is living rebellion against God, the creator. And as you come into Psalm 8, there's this recounting of the Genesis 1 language, but then we kind of scratch our heads and go, well, there's a few things that are different. It's not the exact same. What does it mean then that, that God has made man a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him, crowned him with glory and honor? There's that royal imagery again. And then you've given him dominion over the works of your hands, all things under his feet. There's something that Genesis 1 now is flowing forward. It seems like it's expanded. It's something bigger. What is Psalm 8 talking about? Do we sit back and say, okay, all things are under our feet. We rule. We have been crowned with glory and honor. That would be a great mistake. 
Because though Adam was pictured in Eve as the royal son and daughter and given this beautiful mandate, they can't fulfill the mandate. They can't. They couldn't. And as you walk through the story, no one can. Is anyone worthy? Right? Who can open the scroll? In Psalm 8, it's pointing us to something greater. Actually, it's Psalm 8, verse 2, out of the mouths of babes and infants, you've established strength because of your foes. That text is going to be quoted in Matthew 21 because it's speaking of, can you guess? Who's it speaking of? It's Jesus. It's speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even in verse 6, all things under his feet. That imagery, it's an imagery of enemies being subdued of peace and rest coming in. Let's look at Psalm 72. Flip there. Give the king your justice, O God. And so this is a psalm either written uh, for Solomon or by Solomon. There's good debate there. Um, But it is a kingly psalm. It is a royal psalm. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. There's that imagery. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. Look down at verse 9. May he have dominion. From sea to sea, okay, that's the, the imagery of, the, the, of Israel, and yet it's something greater. Um, it's from sea to sea, right? From, rivers, from the rivers to where? To the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him. Enemies lick his dust. The kings come, bear gifts. All kings, verse 11, may they fall down before him, and all nations serve him. And we're going, man, this is something greater. Because it is something greater. It's pointing us ahead to the royal son who will rule. May all kings fall down before him. And then we go to Psalm 110. Psalm of David, where the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies, your footstool. Okay, do you see it? This is something much greater. This is going to be quoted by even Jesus because he is the royal son that David was speaking of. It is Jesus who is going to come and fulfill what all of these are pointing to. He will rule in the midst of his enemies. Look at verse two. The Lord sends forth from Zion, your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of, of your enemies and your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments and we could go on there's a beautiful priesthood text here from Melchizedek but let's let's look at a couple more Daniel 7 is another important passage as we see this moving forward throughout the Old Testament in Daniel 7 uh, this is now the people have been taken into captivity, and the temple is going to 
be destroyed. So God's people removed, disobedience to the covenant, unfaithfulness to his word. And Daniel has these, these visions. Listen to the language that Daniel records in Daniel 7 verse 13. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. It shall not pass away. His kingdom is one that shall never or not be destroyed. What a powerful text as we watch this story unfold, as we are moved with anticipation for this one who will come among the kings of the earth and his enemies and who will rule and who will reign. And then last Old Testament text, go backwards three, three books-ish to Isaiah. Chapter 53, you can hear in verse 10 these words. The suffering servant passage, some of us are familiar here. As we walk through it, talking about the lamb led to the slaughter, he won't open his mouth, cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of his people. Verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And so there is this, again, this, this picture of the one who will come and who will offer himself for sin, and he will behold his offspring. Did you catch that? Remember those words. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. There is something global. God is at work in a global plan. There is one who is going to be given all dominion. There is one who is going to behold his offspring. And it leads us forward then to Hebrews chapter 2. See if you can get over to Hebrews 2. This is a lot of turning and a lot of scripture. But again, highlighting as we, part of the challenge of doing Genesis is you're looking at foundations or beginnings that you can't just leave hanging because it's beginnings that go through and there is an end and these things shape us and they should shape us. But they have to shape us in the right direction and in the fullness of how scripture unfolds it. And there's something beautiful that we get to behold together as we watch just this little theme growing and then coming to a, a crescendo or a, a pinnacle, really, a, a high. And we'll see this in Hebrews 2. Hebrews has talked about Jesus, the radiance of the glory of God, much like we saw in Colossians 1. And he's greater than angels, as, as Peter mentioned and so this one who is greater than angels, this one who is Jesus Christ, verse, chapter 2, verse 5, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to, uh, the world to come, 
of which we are speaking. Okay, so they've been speaking. It's not angels. Who has he subjected the world to? Who has given dominion in Daniel 7? It's Christ. Okay, it's not angels we're talking about. It's Jesus. It's been testified. Okay, so he's going to bear witness to the reality of the greatness of Christ that he's mentioned. And in it, look what he quotes. Psalm 8. It's been testified somewhere. Psalm 8. Okay. What is man that you're mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we don't yet see everything in subjection to him. Okay? You look around, it sure doesn't look like it. When we look around, it looks like the enemy is winning. It looks like sin is running rampant. It looks like the days of Genesis 6. But, do you know who we do see? Who do we see? Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. See what he's quoting? He's clarifying it. It's Christ. Namely, Jesus. Who's crowned with glory and honor? Who is it? Who is Psalm 8 about? It's Jesus. It's Jesus crowned with glory and honor. How is he crowned with glory and honor? How? It's Isaiah 53. It's through the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Jesus is the son of man who is the ancient of days, who is the eternal one who created and who comes and enters his creation and who is the greater second Adam. And who is the one that exercises dominion and authority. And, and not ever like humanity in this fallen earth. I don't think any of you would volunteer to go and sit in the middle of a pack of lions. Right? I don't think so. Unless you have a gun. No way. And I love how even Mark records after Jesus is tempted. It says he was in the wilderness with the wild animals. And angels were ministering to him. It's like you just kind of pass over. He was with the wild animals. He's not afraid. Why? Because he is the subduer of creation. He walks on the water. He calms the storm. He, he heals the disease. He rebukes and demons come out. He forgives sin. He is the one with all authority in heaven and on earth. It's Jesus. Genesis 1 pointing and leading to something so much greater the book of acts bears witness to this heightened fulfillment i want you to listen to the words you don't have to turn there just listen you can turn there if you want but i'm going to read from a number of uh, three passages in acts and just listen that as jesus gave his life as he died for sin and for sinners and as, as the one with all dominion was himself overcome by sinners, right? As he 
submitted his dominion, right, to the glory of the Father as he suffered so that he would be exalted, right? Exaltation through suffering. And as the gospel then goes forth in the book of Acts, it's, it's, it's proclaimed this way by Luke. Listen to this wording in Acts chapter 6, verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. What increased? The word of God increased. What multiplied? The number of disciples increased and multiplied. It's the same language of Genesis 1. As he tells them to increase and multiply on the face of the earth, here is Luke recording the gospel going forth, and it's, it's increasing, and it's multiplying. There's something happening here. In Acts chapter 12, he records it again. In verse 24, he simply states very, very concisely, but the word of God increased and multiplied. And again, it's the exact phrase, the exact words, the exact statement from Genesis 1. What's increasing and multiplying? God's word, right? What is the foundation of all things? God's word. It's increasing and it's multiplying. And again, in Acts chapter 19, in verse 20, we hear this. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and to prevail mightily. And, and this is not an increase and in multiply uh, in a worldly sense. This is as the church goes forth. And how does the church go forth? The gospel is preached. Sinners believe. And they are coming and submitting to the one who rules and reigns over all things. We are brought into the authority of the one who has all dominion and authority. That's why when Jesus says in Matthew 28... Go, therefore, right? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So as you're going, right, go and do what? Make disciples of all nations. It's not just a birthing of babies to fill the earth with human babies. There is something greater that's going on. It is sons and daughters through, yes, making disciples of your children, right? But infiltrating into Satan's kingdom. The gates of hell will not prevail. His church is going forth. That's what Acts is about. It is through his people. It is through the church. The Great Commission does not take us back so that we can try to fulfill a mandate from Genesis 1. That's backwards. It is leading us. Genesis 1 is pushing us forward to Matthew 28, which launches us as a people redeemed by Christ to take this gospel everywhere because Jesus reigns with all authority in heaven and on earth. And it's through his church. That's what's increasing and multiplying. That's how it's being fulfilled. And Paul echoes that. We heard that in Colossians 1. He says, this gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and growing. It's, it's bearing fruit and multiplying. And so you see the New Testament authors getting a hold of the dominion, the bear fruit and multiply language of Genesis 1, and they see it flowing forward right here through God's people. It's what his spirit is doing. Just listen to these texts. Ephesians 1. 
that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And every name that is named, not only in this age, but also the one to come. First Timothy 6, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be glory and eternal dominion. Amen. First Peter 4, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. First Peter 5, and after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. The, the New Testament authors saw this. It's Christ. He is the true Adam. And his dominion is going forth into all the earth. But look at that beginning. After you've suffered a little while. What is that? How is that? Romans 8 gives us this beautiful picture of the gospel that comes to us. Because in Romans 8, Paul says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons and daughters of God, right? There is this making of of offspring. We are made sons and daughters of God. When we are brought into Christ, we are brought into the royal king, the royal son, and we reflect it. Imagers of Christ reflected out. Did you catch that? Image and reflectors of the one who has dominion. That's why we go forward. We are sons and daughters of the living God. He says, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. We're children of God. But listen to this. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Wait a minute. If Jesus has all authority, and if the gospel is going forth, and the kingdom of Satan is being plundered, and he is taking sinners and slaves to the enemy and making them sons and daughters, if he's conquered death, if he rules over all things, then shouldn't Christians not suffer? Shouldn't we ride the dominion wave of Christ forward? And Jesus says, actually, to follow me is to follow it this way. It's under Because we are imagers of Christ. How do we display the dominion of Christ? By displaying the one who laid it all down and who suffered at the hands of sinners that he might win a global bride. How do we display Christ? We suffer for Christ. And it's the suffering that tests and proves the lordship of the one who rules all things. It's in a people who say, yes, all things for good 
And I will trust that and cling to it because I believe that in the, in the face of what I can't see, that gospel is going forth and his glory is worth running after and living. We are a people who sacrifice for each other because this isn't what is greatest. There's a greater kingdom that we are living in and are a part of and look forward to. That is why we can leave fathers and mothers and, 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 and wives and children. I'm not going to leave you to go back to Uganda. Don't worry. I'm, I'm just quoting Jesus, right? That's why we can lay down everything that the world says, run after this, value this. And we say, it's Christ. I can suffer the loss of all things. Because Jesus' dominion is the dominion. And I want to be a part of his rule. He is ruling in the midst of his enemies. To all things are made his footstool. But it's a kingdom that is upside down to the power structures of this world. It isn't the power structures of the world. It's through a lowly and gentle people who suffer with Christ and who are raised with Christ. A people imaging the Savior who's been given the authority and the dominion. That is the path that we follow. Brothers and sisters, if I say to you, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Really, all of that was just to come back to that simple statement. If I, if I say to you, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. What do you hear? How do you do that? It's through being in Christ, the one who is multiplying, whose word is multiplying sons and daughters, image bearers of Christ in the world and who are reflecting and revealing the one who has all authority, who are not bound by slavery to sin and to death and to Satan. So send me. Let's go. Let's do the hard thing. Because through his people, his word is going forth, it's increasing, and it's multiplying. Don't get caught and trapped in the cocoon of of, of the Christian world that we can create for ourselves. We can insulate, even Christian family can become idolatrous. Make disciples of our children as we engage them as we are engaging people. It's family on mission, it's people on mission, it's church on mission because there is a mission that has been going on from Genesis 1 right up to today to the end of days and you're a part of it. Did you know that? You are a part of it. Do you believe that Christ has all authority and that he's worth surrendering all things? Treasure to live and to make known. Let me end again just the words that we began with. Because as you come into Revelation, that's exactly what John pictures. He says in chapter 1, in the face of this risen Christ, he pictures uh, life on earth as, as or him being a partaker in the kingdom and the tribulation and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Patient endurance that are in Jesus because we're a people who will face persecution and we will face suffering and we will face the realities of life in a fallen world but in the confidence of the one who holds all things. And that leads us then to Revelation 7 where we hear these words, after this I looked and behold a great multitude 
that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And they fall on their faces. And one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes? Where have they come from? I said, sir, you know. And he said, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. Remember, John, I'm your partner in the tribulation that are in Christ. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. And that is a picture of those who have returned from from military warfare. And they're cleaning themselves. But it's the opposite of the world's war. It's those who have imaged their Savior and they are cleansed in the blood of the Lamb. And they are before the throne of God, serving Him day and night. The Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water and wipe away every tear. And that leads us right to the end of Revelation. Brothers and sisters, that's where we're headed. Not in our dominion, but as those who, in the one who's been given dominion, is filling the earth with his sons and daughters. Let's pray. Oh God, I, um, in the midst of all of this, I, I know this is too much, it's too big. And yet your story is so big, so much more than this. But God, thank you that you did make man in your image and to subdue and to multiply on the earth. That in the midst of sin and brokenness, that in your son, you would fulfill something so much greater than what we would even expect or hope. And Lord, thank you that, that right now where we are, you've put us where we are. In the midst of the challenges we're facing, in the midst of the sufferings, we want to image Christ. We want to trust in the one who has all authority. We want to bear witness to the truth of the gospel. We want to be a part of your word, multiplying and increasing in the earth. And we long to see that day of innumerable people gathered praising our great God and the Lamb. Lord, I pray that you would stir our hearts with your truth, that you would give us courage in our jobs, courage in our neighborhoods, courage in our families um, to live out the truth of this gospel. May we be shaped, Lord, by the truth of your word and Even as we come to this table, as we remember, we get to bear witness to the one who gave his life to purchase this beautiful bride, and she will be glorious on that day. Hallelujah. Amen.